Please be seated. Sharon, would you come and read for us, please? I'll be reading today from Psalm 63. My soul thirsts for you. This is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. But the king, they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. Paul. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice uh, in the reminder this morning from your word that you're a God in our life in every circumstance. When we rise up and when we lie down, when we walk in the way, when we run, we can know no thirst because you're God. Father, uh, we recognize too that in so many ways, um, and so often we turn aside from the truth of the beauty that is you and seek after things that hold no promise of peace and hope or, and have no real beauty within themselves and no wonder. You, Lord God, are the one and only God who are awesome, not just because we use that word, but because you have demonstrated that magnificence to us through all time. We have it recorded here in your word, the mighty acts, but we have also experienced those mighty acts in our own hearts and lives. For you have saved us, 
not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of your own mercy. You have washed us in regeneration and given us renewal in your Holy Spirit. All acts of your gracious and merciful love. For you alone, Lord, are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And we confess to you, Lord God, our desperate need for more of you. And may you, Lord God, by this hunger and thirst within us, be magnified. In the name of Christ, amen. So this morning we have two catechism questions. The first is, what is the Lord's Prayer? Yeah, mine says prayer. And as soon as I read that, I thought, I'm, I'm wrong. What is the Lord's Supper? Okay. Uh, the answer is, we'll say this together. Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. And our short answer, Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him. Our scripture this morning, I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11:23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our second catechism question forty seven Does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? Let's say this together. No. Christ died once for all. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal celebrating Christ's atoning work. As it also a means of strengthening our faith as we look to him and a foretaste of the future feast. But these who are... Repentant hearts eat and drink judgment on themselves. Thank you. Our short answer is, no, no Christ, Christ died. died once for all. Our scripture, 1 Peter 3.18, I'll read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's stand. Father, we come before you as a family this morning to worship and honor you and you alone. Father, we thank you for bringing us together, Father, and at the same time joining your family around the world to praise you today. Father, you alone deserve all of our honor, all of our praise. 
You alone, Father, are the creator of all and sustainer of all and healer of all. Thank you for your son, for his sacrifice, Father, for opening the gates and the doors of heaven for us. Thank you for your spirit that dwells in us, Lord, and moves us. We pray, Father, you would move us today as we hear from your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Tom, for opening our time in the Word and preparing our, our hearts to hear from you. And thank you all for the, the opportunity to share. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at the ordinances of the New Testament, the ceremonies that were instituted for us to partake in. And we, we looked at kind of an overview, what is an ordinance, and how did they come to be here, what are they for? And then last week, we looked specifically at baptism as an ordinance, and what does it mean, and how do we participate in it. Today we'll be looking specifically at the Lord's Supper. And and the hope as we look through these is to, to clarify what the Bible teaches about them, but also to reflect on them in the context of our relationship with God. These are ordinances that, that we've been called to participate in. We want to we want to have a hard understanding of what we're doing so that we can do it in a way that it's that it's a blessing to us and that it honors God. Uh, and that it's meaningful and not just Routine. So with that in mind, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ and that it was practiced by the early church. That's what made it an ordinance for us. Today, we're going to go a little bit deeper. So we're going to look at what are the origins of this? We talked about when it was instituted, kind of the context in, in Passover, but what did, what did that look like? Where did it come from so that we can understand it? And, and what is the spiritual focus? What is it that we're supposed to be thinking about, reflecting on, remembering when we partake of the Lord's Supper? And then finally, what does the practice of it look like, both for the church and for us individually? So we're going to start with the origins in Passover, and this is in Exodus 12. I'm not going to read it. You can take a look if you'd like, but, but we're just going to go back kind of historically to get a picture of where this came from. So the Passover festival is what Jesus was participating in when he instituted the Lord's Supper. So it would be helpful to us to understand what was Passover. We go way back in the history, right? Israel, the nation of Israel, were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then God brought Moses and told Moses, I want you to, to be the point person to bring my people out of, because I'm going to be bringing my people out of Egypt. And so Moses went uh, reluctantly, and he talked to Pharaoh, who indeed did not think it was a good idea to let the people out of Egypt. And so there was some conflict there. And God demonstrated who he was both to the Egyptians but also to the Israelites as he was establishing this relationship with them as his people. Uh, through a series of plagues, he demonstrated his power. And on the final plague, uh, there was death. So it was the plague of the angel of death. The angel of death was to come down and the firstborn, everybody, the least to the greatest, was going to die. But he told Moses, tell the people, this is what you need to do. You need to take a lamb. So a baby sheep or a baby goat, um, depending on the size of the family, uh, and you're you're to kill the lamb and eat the lamb as part of a meal. But I want you to take the blood of the lamb, and I want you to put that blood on your doorposts, on your mantle, and then I want you to eat 
the lamb roasted so so quickly. If there's anything left over, you, you burn it. This is not, you know, something that we're slaughtering and then having for a meal for a period of time because we're in a hurry. You are leaving soon. You're going to eat it with bitter herbs. You're going to eat it with unleavened bread. We don't even have time to let the bread rise. Your cloak is tucked in. Your staff is in your hand. Your sandals are on your feet. And the picture was, it's now. Now is when we are going to leave. And, and when the angel of death came, it would see the blood of the lamb on the mantle and it would pass over that house. And no one in that house would die. And God would then, after that final plague, bring his people out of Egypt. And when God told Moses to tell the people, this is what I want you to do tonight, he instituted it before they had ever done it as an ordinance for them of Passover. It was like the first annual, right? Well, how can you have the first annual of something? Well, it means you're doing it and you intend to do it every year. In fact, he said, didn't you? He said, this is the first month of your year. Not this is the first month of the year, but I am defining you now. This is the first month of your calendar because what we are doing here is going to define you as a people. And it's going to define you as my people. And I want you from the very get-go to always come back to this. This is the day of Exodus. This is the day of deliverance. This is what I want you to remember every year in the first month of your year. You're going to celebrate this Passover festival. So that's what Jesus was partaking in. He was in the Jewish community. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, where we see this recorded, and it was the time of festival, Passover. He had gone to Jerusalem for this week-long festival. Now, we don't, we don't have time to go into the whole festival of Passover. I don't really know what happened in the whole festival of Passover. I'm not Jewish. And it, and it wasn't the whole context that we need for the Lord's Supper, right? So in the context of this week-long festival, they've gotten all the leaven out of their house. They're doing all of these things. There was a meal called the Seder Supper. And the Seder Supper is where we're going to be focused today because that's what Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper from. Within the context of the Seder Supper, it is an hours-long meal with at least 15 steps to it, and we're not going to go through the whole thing, in part because I don't know the whole thing, right? I'm not Jewish. I've, you know, I've studied a little bit, but, but the, there are two parts of it that Jesus picked out, and those are the two parts that we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, and those were the bread and the cup. Now, I'm going to step aside for a moment. I'm going to talk about what the Seder Supper looks like in the Jewish tradition of Passover. We are not going to turn to the passage in the Old Testament where God told the Jews, this is how you have a Seder Supper because it's not there, okay? So he definitely commanded them to keep the Passover and there was some stuff about unleavened bread that was very definitely there. But much of our understanding of the Seder Supper, of Passover in general, comes from the Jewish tradition. Now the Jewish tradition was very well documented. So we're not just talking about what Jews do today. We're talking about what has been done for a long time. But but God didn't specifically command all of the things that we see in the Seder Supper in the Old Testament. But there was something commanded because when God says, hey, if your foreigners are going to practice this, they need to do it in accordance with all the statutes and ordinances. So he's very clear that there are statutes and ordinances, but he didn't record them in the Old Testament. So I'm not speaking scripture here. I'm speaking Jewish tradition. But I'm talking about it because... Huh? Jesus thought it was important, right? If Jesus, you know the bread, there's no cup in the Old Testament talked about in Passover. If Jesus said it was important, then we're going to roll with him on this and say, okay, maybe it's not in Scripture, Jesus, but we're following you. And we're going to have a little bit of humility here in, in our understanding of what's happening. And I think you will find that it's meaningful, that God did indeed plan it, and he's using it for a reason. So with that said, the bread from the Seder Supper. 
Seder supper is a meal. It's hours long. You're gathered in the evening. You have your family there. There's a series of things to eat and drink, and they have meaning in the context of Passover, so in the context of Exodus. And, and early on in the supper, the focal point becomes these three pieces of matzah. Matzah is unleavened bread. It looks kind of like a cracker, uh, like, a, like a big saltine cracker sort of, but they're flat and they're a little bit browner. And they, they have these three pieces of matzah, unleavened bread, and they're all stacked together in one stack. And early on in the Seder Supper, the leader of the Seder Supper will take the middle of these three pieces and break it. And then part of that broken middle piece is going to be put into a bag or wrapped up in a cloth and set aside. And then it's going to be hidden. And how that happens varies from tradition to tradition. But this is often where you're trying to keep the kids involved. You know, you have a religious ceremony and you want it to have meaning for them. It's really long. And so you want to keep them engaged. And so in some traditions, the leader or the host is, is leading the supper. And at some point over the course of the meal, he's going to not be paying attention to that, the, the little piece of bread. Incidentally, it's called the afikomen, which, which means the dessert, the thing that will be eaten last. But the kids will steal it when he's not looking. And they'll hide it. And then, and then much later, towards the end, when it's time for it to come back out again, the leader's going to look around. It's not there. And so he has to ransom it back from the kids. And usually there's like some candy or some toys involved, right? This is where they know they're going to get their treat. And so they're anticipating this. And so he'll buy kind of like Easter eggs, sort of. And, and he'll ransom back this, the afikomen, and then it will be partaken of by everyone at the end of the meal. Uh, in other traditions, it's the leader or the adult that hides it. And then at the end of the meal, the kids have to go find it, right? It's kind of like an Easter egg hunt. And they'll look all over the place, and they'll bring it out. But in either event, when it's brought back out, it's the last thing that's eaten. It's given a piece to everyone. And once they eat that, they don't eat anything else for the rest of the meal. Now, I got to go to a, a presentation by a Messianic Jew on the Passover supper that talked about the meaning of kind of a lot of the things. But he made a really big deal about this matzah. He said there are three matzah in one stack. Three in one. And he looked at us Christians until we nodded our head. And the middle, the middle of those three is taken out, broken. It is hidden or buried. And then it comes back again. And when you partake of it, you eat nothing else after that. Do you see the picture? This is my body, broken, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the bread from the Seder Supper. Now the cup, the cup is pretty involved as well. In fact, there are four cups in the Seder Supper. Uh, and these four cups, again, we're looking back at Passover. So they correspond to four statements God makes in Exodus. And we'll take a look at this. And there's much of the story of Exodus. We're in chapter 6 now. Uh, we're on page 57, if you have a pew Bible, that's read over the course of the Seder Supper because we're remembering the Passover. Now, early on in this Passover process, right, when God is bringing his people out of Egypt, he tells Moses, and Moses is like, I don't really think I can do this. And God says, you're all, you're going to be all right. I'm with you. And he goes and Tells him, okay, God, you told me to come say to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm upset with you for asking him to make it hard on all the people. And then the people are mad at Moses. And what have you done to us? Moses called God, I don't want to be here anyway, right? This whole thing is going very poorly. And we, of course, we know the end of the story. But have you ever been doing something? 
and you were afraid it wasn't going to go well when you started it, and then it doesn't go well when you start it, right? He's in a bad spot, and God comes to him, and he says, and this is there's a larger beautiful passage, but this is the focal point. Right in the middle, he makes four I will statements. These are promises to Moses that he gives to his people and then fulfills. And the four cups represent these four statements. In Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So the first cup is the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And it's a picture of sanctification that they, they're going to be set apart. And we are remembering that part of the Passover process. The second cup they drink is the second statement in Exodus 6, 6. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. So this is the cup of deliverance that you're being delivered, taken out of the bitterness and the suffering that you've had and delivered from it. We are remembering that about who God, what God did when he made us his people. The third cup is the last statement in verse six. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And when they partake in that cup, that's the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. And he explains how he's gonna do it with this outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. They will be redeemed by God himself. And then the fourth and final cup is in verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And that's a statement that God makes throughout the Bible. They will be my people, and I will be their God. It's this picture of this relationship that he's constantly working for with his people. And so when they partook of the four cups in the Seder Supper, they were remembering what God had promised, and not only that he had promised it, but that he had done it. Now, which of these four cups did Jesus take? Uh, we, we see some allusions to different, different of the cups and the different accounts of the Lord's Supper, but it is widely accepted from the context of the fact that it says, and after the supper, he took the cup, that if you look at the procession of when the cups are taken, there is a specific cup that they take after the supper. And that cup is the third cup. So the cup that our Redeemer took was the cup of redemption. And when he held the cup of redemption and they said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. That's the cup from Seder Supper that Jesus used. So, so when we look at what, what God was teaching his people, he took the picture of redemption that they understood the best. He took the ordinance that they had been commanded to do over and over again so they'd really get it. That picture of the blood of the lamb that let death pass over them and God redeeming them to be his people. And that is what he used when he gave us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Now we study the origin, not because it's you know novel or interesting, but because it it's part of a greater story. And we are part of that greater story. God made us. And ever since we rebelled in the garden, he's been pursuing us. He wants us to be his people. And, and when he took the Jewish people out of Egypt, he gave them something to hold on to and something to look forward to. They were to hold on to their identity, defining identity as his delivered people, and to look forward to the Messiah. And then he came and he brought the promise, the fulfillment of redemption. 
And as we discussed, we were answering the ordinance questions. This was so foundational, right? That he instituted a ceremony so that we would regularly remember it and who it makes us as we look forward to his coming again. It's part of a bigger story of God's people, and, and we get to take part in that. So that's the picture. That's the context in which this ordinance came about. Let's look then, if it's, if it's that important, at what, what it is we're supposed to be focusing on as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And the, the best passage, I think, to turn to for this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So turn there if you would. We're going to be mostly here for the, the remainder of this morning. And we're on page 1061 if you're in, no, we're not, 1139 if you're in the Pew Bibles. Uh, and I think this is a good, a good passage because this is the passage in which Paul is teaching the Corinthians church, this is what the Lord's Supper is about. This is what you're supposed to be doing. So if we're trying to understand what is the Lord's Supper about, this is awesome. Paul was there and he taught them what it was supposed to look like for the early church. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there's a chance that if you've been part of a church like this for a long time, that about a quarter of the way into that reading, your mind tuned out a little bit. Uh, and it's not because you're not a spiritual person. It's because you're human. And this is just a little thing about how our minds work. If I start saying something to you and you know what the next words are going to be, your focus and processing power turns down. It's just because you know what's going to come, right? And so, and so then you get to the end, you're like, oh, that's right, we just finished reading something. And some of you may find this happens with Scripture a lot. Now, some of that is spiritual warfare, right? Anytime the word's read, there's someone who doesn't want you to get it. And so we're going to need to apply ourselves and make sure we're not letting this become routine. But, but part of it's just one of the dangers of tradition, right, is you do it so much that it becomes routine, and you're not necessarily connecting with the meaning of it anymore. And our goal right now is to go back through this and say, let's slow down. Let's take a look at what's being said and what it really means. So if you, if you look at how Paul is teaching this, he starts with the setting. So he starts by saying, for I received from the Lord, meaning this is coming from God. What I passed on or delivered to you, that is, I taught this, right? This is something that you're familiar with. And, and here was the setting, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. Did Jesus know he was going to be betrayed? Yeah, he told them. And he told them he knew he was going to be betrayed by someone who was sitting at the table with him. He is sitting at the table with someone who's about to betray him. And what did he do? He took the bread and gave thanks. Could you do that? I mean, if you found out between now and dinner tonight that someone you were having dinner with was going to betray you, and then you sat down at the table with this person who's going to betray you, can you put your heart in a place where you can give thanks? 
That's really incredible. It really speaks to the focus that Jesus had on the task that God had set before him and just his conviction of what needed to happen. And when he had given thanks, he took the bread and he gave it. Okay, That's not incidental. He didn't say, okay, everybody pick up your bread. That the bread they were going to partake in was physically given from Jesus to them. That was actually part of the picture of the ceremony, of what he was teaching them. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is the part that has the spiritual meaning. This is, this is what he's saying. This is what we need to focus on. This bread is my body. It's been given for you. Partake of it in remembrance for me. Well, what does it mean for the bread to be Jesus' body? Well, we ask that question, and the good news is Jesus actually taught about this. He taught about his body as bread before this ever occurred, and it happens in John chapter 6. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, but flip back to page 1060. John chapter 6, and this is, incidentally, this is interesting that we're going to look to the Gospel of John for this because John doesn't teach the story of the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have accounts of the Lord's Supper, but it's not in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes called the synoptic gospels because they sort of, you know, that idea of the synopsis, right? They're telling the stories about what happened, and it's a little bit more kind of a historical bent to it or a, a this is what happened. John's different. John's whole gospel is different. His focus is on the spiritual significance of what was happening. So he doesn't start with a genealogy, right? He starts with in the beginning was the word, right? He's focused on the spiritual stuff. And he arranges the, the signs or the wonders that Jesus did to show this spiritual power. It's the same with the teachings he records. He records the teachings of Jesus, and we see in them kind of this deeper spiritual peace that Jesus was teaching about. And, and Jesus tells this to the Jews about his body being bread. This is in John chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we talk about Jesus' body being the bread it's the bread of life. It's that which we take and nourishes. It's, it's what we can partake of and live forever. And when we partake of the body of Christ at the Lord's Supper, the, the bread, we're, we're partaking of that which will let us live forever. And it's this physical picture of being given, right? He is the bread. He has the bread. He gives it to us, right? It goes out from him and it comes into us. And when it comes into us, we then live forever. That's foundational. That's the thing that Jesus wanted us not to miss. Okay, the blood. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. So if his body is the bread of life that we partake of and live forever, what was the context in which he gave the cup? We see that in verse 25, in the same way also he took. So in the same way, he has it, he's given thanks, he's had a table, it's before he was betrayed. He took the cup, and he told us something about it, and it's different than what he says for the bread. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In Luke twenty two twenty, 20, he says, 
the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. So he makes specific reference when he gives them the cup to a new covenant. We talked about that new covenant in Jeremiah. It's the one that God said was coming, that I'm, gonna, I'm going to put my, my law in their hearts, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. He had this plan from the beginning, and Jesus is saying, this is it. This cup is the new covenant now in my blood. Now in the Old Testament, covenants were made with blood. They were blood covenants. We're not going to go into it. It's, frankly, in our context of our culture, it's a little bit weird and not entirely informative. But they had a context for this, right? Blood and covenant were tied together. They made blood covenants. That was a thing. So when Jesus said there's a new covenant coming, it's not surprising the symbol he would use was blood, but not the blood of an animal anymore, which is what was used in sacrifice to, to make right the people's sins and their God. He said, it's my blood. And it's poured out, which was a symbol of his death. That, that the blood pictured here then, Jesus' blood was poured out in death as a sacrifice. And he established a new covenant with us. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're looking back on when we partake in the Lord's Supper. So those are foundational pieces that we need to remember. It's what we're supposed to be focusing on. But, but how often and when? He goes on in verse 26 to say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, so repeatedly, you proclaim the Lord's death, that's our focus, until he comes. So that just as the Jews were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah with this ordinance, now we have an ordinance with which we participate, and we're looking forward to his coming again. And when he comes again, we will get to partake in this with him at the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is pretty exciting. Uh, and there's one last aspect of this that I think we need to pick up, and, and Paul conveniently doesn't make us turn the page. It's right back there in chapter 10. In chapter 10, he says in verse 16, 1 Corinthians, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the last piece we see in it, just as this is a, something that we repeatedly do to emphasize the connection that we have with God, it's also something we do that emphasizes our connection with each other. That because we're all partaking of one and the same bread, we then are unified together as one body. The, certainly there are differences in different gifts, but we have a unifying piece. We have all partaken of the same bread. You picture a, a sports team, right? And if they win the championship, right, and they're celebrating, they're not celebrating because they were on offense or they were on defense or they were on special teams or they were the pitcher or they sat on the bench, right? They're celebrating if and only if they have the same name printed on their jersey, right? Because that team is what won, and they're unified under that one name, and that's why they celebrate together. I went to a, a concert or a, a rally or something once in which there were like thousands of people there, right, from different churches, and the, the, the speaker up front was, was working the crowd in the beginning of it, right? And he says, I want to get to know all of you. Everybody shout your name. And then everybody yells their name, right? And you just have this cacophony of sounds. You're like, oh, I didn't quite catch that. Maybe you could tell me, what church are you from, right? And then everybody shouts their church name. But again, you have this cacophony of voices. And I'm, I'm not picking it up. Can you tell me what denomination you're with, right? And it evens out a little bit, but it's still just a mess. And then he says, can you tell me who your Savior is? 
everybody shouts at the same time, Jesus, as one. And that picture stuck in my head like, oh, that's what we're all about. It's the same. That's why we're all in the same place right now, because we all partake in the same body. And that unifies us as one. That is bigger than and more important than anything else. Because it was foundational, he gave us an ordinance to constantly come back to and remind us of this. So that's the spiritual focus. We have the bread of life. We have the blood of the covenant. We're doing it until he comes again and we're being unified by it. What should the practice of the Lord's Supper look like? When we actually partake in the Lord's Supper, what, what is this thing that we're doing? Well, if you were to give the New Testament to someone who didn't know anything about Christianity and you were to say, hey, there's, this is like kind of guiding rules for religion here and I want you to study it, in there somewhere there's going to be something about the Lord's Supper and your job is to figure out just from what's printed in here, what do you think the Lord's Supper would look like when his people celebrate it? And then you gave them a year to study it and they came back to you at the end of the year. They would probably say something like this. Okay, found the Lord's Supper part, and it looks like God's people are supposed to partake of it regularly. It's something they're supposed to do over and over, um, and there should be one loaf, and it probably unleavened, uh, and that that, that bread is going to be broken and given to the people, and they're going to partake of it, and it has something to do with his body, and they're remembering him for that. And then there should be a cup, uh, and that cup represents the new covenant in his blood, it says, and, and the people will partake of that cup and they'll remember his sacrifice. Uh, and if they were pretty good with context, they might say it looks like this is happening when it happens in the context of a meal that people are eating together. That's what you would probably get if you studied the New Testament and said, what should the Lord's Supper look like? Now, you might notice that description doesn't exactly match the current form of the Lord's Supper as we often partake of it. Uh, and when, when you go to, to reconcile that, I think the, the conclusion you'd come to pretty quickly is it's really not about the exact actions. Does that make sense? Like, very infrequently does God come down and say, you guys are doing this exact action wrong, right? What he's really concerned about and what he often chastises people for is the heart condition that it's the spiritual focus on this that matters. So, so we should have, I think, a lot of grace among the wider body of Christ about how this ordinance is processed. We also all don't come from the same spiritual backgrounds or religious practices. So we need to have some grace for each other if the church maybe doesn't do it the way you're used to it being done. Our goal is not to have the motions to be the same. We've already discussed, when you do the same thing over and over again, sometimes it doesn't give it more meaning. Sometimes you sort of lose something. Every once in a while, maybe we need to shake it up. So we're like, hey, wait, we're not doing that. Oh, that's right. We're not focused on that. We're focused on the spiritual meaning. That's what we need to be concerned with. Incidentally, that's true of all or both of the ordinances. So there are people who are having grace to us about the Lord's Supper, and we can have grace to them about baptism. We're doing it the right way if it's in our hearts the right way. Now, that, that doesn't mean it can't be done wrong. It can, and Paul was pretty upset with the Corinthians about what they were doing, and it would behoove us to look at that because we don't want to do it in a way that doesn't honor God. But the way that does or doesn't honor God has very little to do with the physical elements and much more to do with our hearts. Uh, stay, stay in 1 Corinthians 11 there. 
That, that beautiful passage in verse 23 is Paul explaining the, to the Corinthians how, how the Lord's Supper should be taken. But the reason he has to do that is because they're doing it in a way that isn't good. And he, he rebukes them about what they're doing that isn't good in the passages around that. So let's back up then to verse 20 and see what Paul has to say about how we shouldn't do or what problems could arise when we practice the Lord's Supper. In verse 20, he says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And he's upset because he sees these problems. And the first problem he sees is there is a lack of unity. It, the way that they were practicing this, it appears they were coming from all of their homes, but they were bringing, everybody kind of brought their own food for the meal that was going to be partaken of because it was happened in the context of a meal. And so it's, I mean, it's like a, it's kind of almost like a picnic where like you get there, if you're hungry, you eat, okay. And then someone else comes and, and doesn't have enough. And you're like, oh, well, for them, I'm eating and I'm happy and I'm drinking and I'm liking what I'm drinking, so I'm going to drink some more of it. This is not the Lord's Supper. So the first problem he sees is there's a lack of unity among you. You are not doing this together. The second problem he sees, you can bring this up on the slide there, is that they are participating for their own appetite. That that's what their focus is. Am I hungry? Would I like to drink something? Then I do. And and the focus is not where it should be. And we see him admonish him, them about this later on in the chapter, in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that without discerning the body is also translated without recognizing the body. And the emphasis there is where is the focus? What is it that you're focused on when you're doing that? So partaking in an unworthy manner without recognizing the body, that's the third problem that he sees in the church. But he offers them solutions. He, he tells them, hey, you, there's a way to get this right, okay? And here's what I want you to do in verse 28. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So his encouragement to them then is, this is what I want you to do. I want you to examine your heart. Examine your heart before you partake of the Lord's Supper. And that will help make sure that you are focusing on the things that we want to be focusing on. The, the four things that we had just listed earlier. He encourages them also in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That this if this is to be a ceremony of unity, you need to wait for each other. You need to do it together as a body. And lastly, he tells them, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He wants them to eat at home to keep the focus on the ordinance. He wants them to take away whatever it is that, that they're moving away from the ordinance for. Get rid of that so you can focus on what it's really here for. Now, we don't have that same problem. We, we tend not to come to the Lord's Supper hungry. Or, or if we do, we don't find it that satiating, right? It's not part of our context. But, but we do have distractions. 
We have things that distract us from participating in the Lord's Supper in a way that, that makes it honoring to God. And Paul's admonition to us, I think, would be do whatever it takes to get rid of those distractions so that when you come, you can focus on the ordinance as it's been given to us. And that's going to be different for each of us. But I would encourage you to identify what are the distractions? What are the things that keep you from focusing on the body and the blood of Christ at the Lord's Supper? For, for some of you, that may be the core of your relationship with God. You may find that when, when you think about your life and you think about God, you, there's dissonance there. And you understand this is not whatever, surrender. This is not the way that it should be. And when I come to God, I'm not comfortable with this, but I don't really want to change it. And there's that, that whatever it is, that friction. And, and I'd encourage you, take that before you come to the Lord's Supper and talk to God about that friction. Don't, you don't have to solve it, right, in one sit down, but recognize it before him. Be honest with God about where you are with him so that you can partake of the body and the blood, which you know to be true and foundational in a way that honors him and helps to reconcile that relationship. For some of you, it may be hurry. Maybe you're just in a hurry. We are different people when we're in a hurry. I don't know if you've seen this, but we don't respond to things the same way when our minds are going. And whatever it takes for you to get out of a hurry on the Sunday mornings when we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper, I encourage you, do it. Get rid of that distraction. Incidentally, for some of us, it's the calendar. We come here Sunday morning and we're like, oh, it's the Lord's Supper today. I forgot about that. Well, I can help you with that, right? We generally have a regular schedule for it. We do it on a family Sunday, which is the first Sunday of the month. So if you want to go to your calendars and mark the first Sunday of the month, like actually put it on your calendar, then maybe it becomes like something that you're anticipating, right? When I look at something on my calendar, I think, oh, I need to get ready for that. And perhaps the simple act of just putting it on that Sunday lets you and your heart then prepare for that. As an aside, family Sunday is the last Sunday of the month this month. So next Sunday is the Lord's Supper. You have a chance to get ready for baptism and the Lord's Supper next Sunday and come and do it in a way that makes it a blessing. Now, this is not about doing it right. Okay? I'm, we're not like, like I'm, where am I focused enough? Is this like, no, that's not, that's not the picture, right? Because then we get again, okay, I need to do this right. It's a relationship, okay? And and what, what we're being told here is you need to partake of it in a way that is relationally engaged for what it's there for. I ran two errands last month, among others, both of which involved dropping something off. I needed to drop off my key at the auto shop so that they could change the oil on my car, and I needed to drop off a card for my wife at work for our month anniversary. Did I do both of those things the same way? No, because one of them was transactional, right? One of them was relational, and I'm in a different mode when I'm doing those things. And God wants us to get in that relational mode when we are coming to partake with him and with each other of the Lord's Supper. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's literally an invitation. Jesus is holding it out to you to say, come and partake. I am giving this to you. And it's a chance for us to recenter ourselves on the foundation of our faith, to let, to let all of the things that are clamoring for our attention and importance that are perhaps confusing us, just let them fall away before him. As Jesus says to us, this is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. And we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us so much. God, for not wanting us to miss it. And I pray that you give us a a freedom and a peace in our hearts to partake, particularly next week, in these ordinances in a way that honors you and is a blessing to us. Amen.